Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just on four o'clock and it's time once again for Tuesday Home Time. Today, author and historian Brian McKinley looking at slavery and present-day fascism. Terror in the Middle East, Israel past and present with Kim Bullimore. The arrest and charging of quote-unquote patriot Philip Galea with Debbie Brennan from the Campaign Against Fascism and Racism. The role of women in opposition to World War I with Dr Judith Smart. And who pulled the coup in Turkey? I'll be speaking with Professor Emeritus James Petrus. But first, Mr Kevin Healy. A weak Jane listener when, like me, I'm sure you feel depressed and angry, hating, not hating, or not expressing our well-founded hate. Angry that the goody-goody black armband, commie, greenie, wooden working and iron lots block our right to hate. Hate those who aren't like us. The goody-goody lot themselves, for instance. Weak-kneed, lily-livered, gutless churches which put up signs expressing goody-goody black armband capitulatory crap, for instance. Don't we hate that? All those races, religions, no proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people we're told we must hate but can't say we hate and we're told some of them are good and it's not all of them but hate them anyway but don't say it. Although on the no proper papers, boat people, illegal lot, there are no good ones and we must hate them all but we can't say we hate them unless we're the government with the responsibility of telling us we must hate them and of course, evil unions. Oh no, not of course. We are allowed to hate evil unions and say we hate evil unions and indeed it is a crime not to hate evil unions and not to say we hate evil unions. The government leads the way. Showing hating evil unions and lazy avaricious workers generally is respectable and proper and legal and obligatory and new throwaway the key Senator Derrick Lyncham said there should be a law outlawing those who hate those who hate. And thus we were surprised to find a woman treading the fine line of the law over the obligation to hate evil unions and lazy avaricious workers. More so as she comes from a normally very, very legal evil union hating machine. Yes, what a working class hero that big suprema of the Business Profits Council of True Blue Catherine Livingstone, the workers sweat. Just when we've become accustomed to key caring business class figures telling us wages and wage rises were crippling the economy, Catherine, in a plea for the government to do more to explain how the success of the caring business class is good for all of us, said the political system must face up to the harsh realities of chronic budget deficits and slow wages growth. Reality is harsh, all right, workers agreed. So thank you, Catherine, for recognising that slow wages growth is a harsh reality and doubtless workers can now depend on you to back the obvious solution to the problem. 
Of all the economic problems you have to worry about, the solution to this one is a breeze. On what was supposed to be a breeze, we were guaranteed what was promised as a consensus turned in minutes, surprisingly into a nonsense, a nonsensus, forcing the Minister for Nonsensus, my hell no come back, to go to ground faster than a scared rabbit, telling us for days how we had nothing to fear. Privacy was so, so secure. The system was foolproof then, telling us nothing when the proverbial hit the fan, suddenly becoming unavailable for a comment, probably because he was on the phone thanking big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull for handing him the poison chalice. Still, given that no one except his mother had the slightest idea who he was until the nonsensus went off so well, or sorry, correction, went off, think positively, my hell. Now everyone knows who you are. I said surprising, because with the whole country asked to log on simultaneously, who would have expected the system to collapse? Heads will roll, an angry Malcolm assured the country while making sure his own head went nowhere near the guillotine. This has been a failure of the ABS. Uh, how's that, Malcolm? They have failed to adjust to the savage cuts we made in their budget and to my predecessor, tiny a bit more for the bosses, leaving them without a supremo for more than a year. They have not adopted my mantra of innovation, of making something out of nothing. Well, they did succeed in making nothing out of something. Still, the smooth operation must reassure those dissenters concerned their privacy may be at risk that there is not the slightest risk to their privacy. We're certainly reassured, they said. Speaking of something out of nothing, as the Witch Bank, which used to be our bank, announced a record $9.5 billion profit, that's $9.5 billion which would have been wasted in the public coffers, but for the foresight of former world's greatest world Treasurer Paul and our former great and beloved Prime Minister Nuclear Hawk himself and the Coterie which realised those profits were wasted in the inefficient public purse. As it announced, it also pointed out the prospects for the next year were clouded. There were several speed humps, a favourite corporate term facing them, headwinds, another favourite. Every year when they announce their record profits, they warn us next year looks very unfavourable. A very sensible ploy because some lazy avaricious workers whose only minor contribution to the record profits is providing them may get uppity and think they should get some benefits from the record profits they did no more than provide, like heaven forbid, a pay rise. We'd love to. The banks look very sincere. But as we explained, the time is just not right. Surely you heard we face speed humps, headwinds and other mixed metaphors. If only you'd asked after last year's record profits. Well, we did. The lazy avaricious workers sputtered. And you told us the same thing. Yes, yes, things were looking clouded at that time, but thankfully the road did clear. We could put down the accelerator. The wind did change and blow us forward. But look, we can't have you wasting our valuable time like this. Get back behind the counter. Well, better luck next year, workers. And the banks explained that not passing on interest rate cuts to their customers was good for stability and growth. You mean in the national economy? It stabilises our beautiful, beautiful record profits and allows them to grow. And if we make less next year than this year's record profit, we will have to report a disastrous year. What, a 9.3 billion profit, for instance, would be a disaster? 
It's too awful to contemplate. Still, Malcolm got really tough with the banks. We will call you in on one day every year for a little chat over tea and biscuits and ask you lots of questions. He had them shaking at the knees. The charity Zion knows, if Zion says it, there can be no doubt, knows passed all this money to evil terrorist Hamas was a bit surprised, mainly because the amount Zion knows he passed on for terrorism was many times the charity's total budget. And last week, Zion grabbed another evil terrorist, this time a worker for that well-known terrorist organisation, the UN of the US of the UN of the world. He was apparently passing three times the entire UNO budget to evil terrorist Hamas. And oh, how Zion knows how evil the UNO is. It keeps passing resolutions suggesting Zion has no right to occupy militarily the little bit of land terrorists try to exist in the worst, in and worse, claims the settlements Zion keeps opening in other people's countries are illegal. When Zion knows they're not, based on that most reliable of confirmations, the Zion laws Zion passed making it legal. And because it is legal to occupy militarily other people's, t- terrorists, other people's non-country, existing in their non-country because you just happen to occupy their country, it is also legal to march into any home it likes and arrest the non-people, take them back to Zion, which they still regard as their country, showing what terrorist threats they are and confirming the need to arrest them because they are attempting such terrorist threats as to rebuild their non-country raised by themselves, apparently, because being raised in constant bombing raids is terrorism and Zion is not terrorist. And if they rebuild all those ruins, Zion will be forced to bomb them and Zion hates terrorism and that's why the charity and the UNOB agree with Zion that the people being bombed are the terrorists. True Blue Aussie also hates terrorising people, bringing us back to those we must hate. And the latest, just one more report of misery, desperation, self-harm, harm, torture and despair in True Blue Aussie's concentration camps behind the razor wire. Those fleeing our bombs, slaughter, disruption. But we shouldn't worry, because the Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer, reminds us True Blue Aussie's concentration camps have absolutely nothing to do with True Blue Aussie. We have contracted out the misery, desperation, self-harm, harm, torture and despair. And Pete also pointed out it is illegal to report what is going on in the concentration camps that have nothing to do with True Blue Aussie. We must look at prosecuting these criminals. Although let me assure the true blue Aussie people that what is going on in these idyllic island resorts is not going on. Endorsed by the Finance for Caring Business Class Minister Matthias Rotten-Tuda, informing us many of the allegations are quite historical in nature. Uh, Just how historical, Matthias? Some go as far back as yesterday. And finally, on logic, top marks to the State Minister for Private Housing and Landlords, Martin Foley, to be poor for telling the homeless they must leave state-owned homes because those very homes are needed to house the needy. Top marks, Martin, for pointing out homelessness has absolutely nothing to do with being needy. Good afternoon. And once again, many thanks to Mr Kevin Healy for his week that was... Let's turn now to history with historian and author 
Brian McKinlay. Jan, uh, a few weeks ago I looked at fascism in the classic European models of Hitler and Mussolini and what fascism was about. And it occurred to me after that, and I've been working on this, that uh, an, an interesting example is the United States of America. Two famous quotes about fascism. One I quoted, I know, a quote I always think is apt by an American writer in the 30s who said, when fascism comes to the United States, it will be wrapped in the flag and carrying the cross. Now, could you find a better definition of these far-right groups today in America? And Woody Guthrie, the famous jazz musician in the 30s, a very anti-fascist musician, said fascism is easy to understand. It's just capitalism plus murder. A remarkable comment that ties some, some fascism up, actually. Now, you have to remember that American society, from its, its beginning, was marred by... A couple of remarkable things about America. It was marked by slavery. Now, slavery is a terrible institution. I've been reading a good deal about it lately because I've been watching a series called Roots, which looks at slavery in the context of one man's life. Uh, an African chief's son who is plucked out of an African existence, a fairly happy existence, and suddenly is a non-person and is sent on the terrible boat to America, a boat on which half the African slaves would regularly die. Uh, what took place then in the 16th and 17th century was the largest migration of human beings in human history. Nobody knows how many millions died on the passage from Africa to the Americas, and it wasn't just the United States. The British and the French and the Dutch, all the European powers, built the basis of their modern economies on a slave economy. And there were two principal crops, by the way. Sugar, which at its beginning had been a luxury in Europe, a real luxury, and in Paris, for instance, in the 1700s, sugar was sold by pharmacies and used for medical purposes only. But the demand for sugar was so intense that the only workforce would be slaves because sugar was grown in hot, difficult climates and the other crop was cotton, another crop that changed the world. So the slave industries everywhere in the Americas basically were based on sugar and cotton. But other crops, of course, as well, were used, as slaves were used. And today, of course, in recent weeks, but right up to the present day, we've seen a great deal about Rio de Janeiro. But most people don't realise that slavery was as big in Brazil as it was in the United States. And one thing about Brazilian slavery, it lasted longer. There was no civil war in Brazil to end slavery uh, as there was in the United States. And slavery didn't end until about the 1880s, which in Australian terms is about the time of Henry Lawson and the early labour movement in this country. A very recent period in Australian history. My grandmother, who died some years ago, was born in 1888. Well, that was about the end of slavery in Brazil. <clears throat> if you look at the crowds in Brazil today on the news about the games, you'll notice that the street people in Brazil are of every shade you could imagine. People descended of Portuguese, of Germans, of blacks, of Indians, all sorts of groups. 
So that in effect today, Brazil is a wonderfully multiracial country, but a country with terrible problems, great deal of poverty, huge differences between the rich and the poor, and endlessly corrupt governments. All of that began with slavery. It's it's half a millennium, about 500 years, since the Portuguese conquered Brazil. And about the same time, the British were beginning the first settlements in New England and North America. And all these industries needed slaves. George Washington and Benjamin Franklin, the founders of the American Republic, were all owned slave owners. In fact, Benjamin Franklin went further than that and had had children by one of the slave women who was a servant to one of his daughters. He had several families from black and white women, and uh, this was very common. It was simply not recognised or even spoken about, but it was common for the white landowner to have children, have relationships and children with uh, a number of black women on his plantation. This, of course, became part of the United States social fabric. In the 1820s, however, after the Napoleonic Wars, and one of the effects of the French Revolution, actually, uh, they grew up in Britain based on the non-conformist churches, a movement that said that slavery was wrong. And eventually, these people and liberal groups in Britain won a great battle and got the slave trade banned in British colonies and eventually crossed the Atlantic altogether using the British Navy to ban the the carrying of slaves. The slave trade went on, of course, in a way, not on the Atlantic, but it was of slaves, children, born to slaves who they themselves were enslaved. And often children as as young as eight or ten would be sold by slave traders to other plantations and the kids weren't educated in any way so at ten or twelve they could work in the fields and pick fruit and do all sorts of things. And so you had generations of slaves. In Mexico uh, it was the practice of many plantation owners to use young girls as young as 13 or 14 to breed year after year children from slave men and the girls of course had no say in this was basically rape and an annual baby in case of Mexico produced a crop of children for later sale. One area in Mexico is said to have produced, and Cuba was another place, by the way, to have produced as many as 30,000 children over several generations who were sold then into, and in Mexico they could be sent over land into the United States. All this legally came to an end in in the 1860s when the Civil War under Lincoln's presidency traumatised the United States and brought an end to American slavery legally. But in a way, it didn't solve the problem because the blacks of the South, who were now free, had no education, no money, and all they could sell was their labour, as they had done when they were slaves. They now could live freely off the plantations, but the small towns of the American South, as they still are today in many ways, were poor, poverty-stricken, overwhelmingly black, and uh, blacks with few opportunities in life. 
I mean, you have to remember, too, that slavery is a very ancient institution, probably the most terrible violation of human rights in human history. The, the ancient Romans made of slavery a major institution. It wasn't black slaves so much, although they were brought from Africa across the Sahara, and Libya, Tripoli, the capital, was the great slave trading centre. And there are still places in, in Tripoli, I've been there, but there's an ancient fort, which is now a wonderful museum set up by the Gaddafi administration, which looks at the whole history of Libya, and slavery was a central item. Slaves were sent off to Rome and later to Constantinople and the cities of Europe. Ironically today, a flood of black immigrants from sub-Saharan Africa are illegally crossing from Libya every day of the week to Europe and especially to Italy. Slavery is an ancient institution, as I said, and the most terrible violation of human rights. Children are taken away from women men could be castrated and sent off to the palaces of Rome and Constantinople to mind the women who were there in harems in Constantinople's case. But slavery in the Americas was therefore not a new event in human history. But after the Civil War and a generation later in Brazil, slavery was eventually banned, but it didn't improve the lot of the blacks very much. And if you look at America today, 150 years after that, uh, American society is still plagued by poverty among the blacks and violent attacks and breaches of human rights. Just in the last few days, there's been one of these endless shootings of black young men by the local police. Quite extraordinary events when you think of them. Into this swirling mess of political events in the United States has come Donald Trump. Trump is an odd figure, putting aside what your thoughtful listeners will know about Trump. He is an odd figure, a man of great wealth, a man, I would say, of fascist popular views, an extreme nationalist, racist in his attacks on people like Hispanics, He's stupid, but he's not stupid enough to get himself into a, a, an outright attack on black Americans. But certainly his attacks on Hispanics have all the elements of racist behaviour. After the Civil War in 1865, the plight of American Negroes was not much improved, and it isn't much improved even today. But it's interesting that Trump is picking up white working-class males whose living standards have been declining in America for 30 or 40 years. Wages have hardly ever increased. Huge wealth has gone to the upper middle class and the ruling elites who have, are richer than anything in human history in the United States. But at the bottom of the scale, blacks, Hispanics and poor working-class males who are mostly unemployed because globalisation has sent their jobs to cheap labour countries like Mexico or China. That suits capitalism to work out of the poorest countries where they can pay the poorest wages.
Now, of course, that has hit American working-class males. So the motor industry has collapsed. Manufacturing has largely collapsed. And these people are in a pretty desperate state. In a country that doesn't have a social security framework, however bleak in many ways, that we have for the poor or the unemployed. There's no national health scheme, really. There are no doles. All of that means that these people can face absolute poverty, be forced to live on charity food stamps and so on. They have rallied round Trump because he seems to be, as Mussolini did in Italy, an opponent for a while of the establishment. Though nobody would believe that a multi-billionaire could be such. That's really the reason, I believe, for Trump's partial successes. On the other hand, Hillary Clinton, who has certain qualities, she's a remarkable woman in an age when it's still difficult for women to make their way to political power. You have to think of her as someone like Margaret Thatcher. She represents not only the established political groups, but uh, her opposition to Trump is based on a whole range of things. The end of the Civil War in America opened up a long, bitter struggle for black rights, and it was a very slow battle. Um, oddly enough, in America, blacks, when they went into the workforce in, later on in industry, blacks often filled the lowest levels of the workforce, and other sections of the working class kept away from them, uh, which meant that the American working class in the 19th and early 20th century was very divided, unlike Europe in places like Britain or France, where left-wing groups of one sort or another united the working class, and even in Australia, where the early labour movement did that. In America, there was a division, and that left a great gulf between sections of the working class who really couldn't cooperate for their own benefit. A key event in the United States was World War I, because lots of blacks were conscripted and went off to fight and die in France. But one thing about these blacks, taken out of the rural poverty of black America in most cases, and from the towns, they went to Europe and saw societies which weren't segregated. France was never that kind of country. And one other thing that united the blacks was the enormous um, popularity of their own particular kind of music. Much modern music is derived from black sources, and the original source was known as jazz. Now, jazz after World War I became enormously popular around the world, and in the United States especially. The jazz musicians of the South, young men, often made their way north, where life was still segregated, by the way, but where they could get jobs and live freer. And cities like New York and Chicago were much more liberal. In New York particularly, the suburb of Harlem became a meeting place for young black musicians and writers and other people. And the beginning of the modern black political movement in the United States begins in Harlem in the 1920s, often based around jazz musical places. And one of the odd things was that this was the age of prohibition and there were many illegal dance places where you could go and get booze 
and dance to jazz musicians, New York became the centre of a quite enlightened and growing black political movement. Oddly enough, some of these jazz places that whites went to were still places where blacks weren't allowed to dance. You didn't have places where black women and white men would dance together. But you could have jazz musicians. During the 20s and 30s, New York became a centre for this jazz black political movement. It had to be said, of course, at the same time that in the South the horrible events linked with the black community, that is lynching, was a way of keeping blacks in their place. And so young blacks, especially men, made their way by train to Chicago or New York, and these cities today have an enormous black population. Barack Obama, of course, came from that Chicago black community. He was a senator in Illinois before he became president. So all this is part of the American events in the post-World War period, linked, oddly enough, with Prohibition and with jazz. All of these have played into modern American society. If you look at the Daily News, you'll see the shootings of young blacks by policemen. You'll see, equally as last night, riots by black people in Milwaukee and in other cities. You'll see, generally, the relative poverty and general poverty of black communities, their poor educational standards, so that this part of American society has never really been improved much. On the other hand, we have the irony of a black man in the White House. Uh, this would have seemed a century ago absolutely unthinkable. So there have been changes in the United States. Uh, and then into this ferment of racial problems, uh, widespread unemployment and considerable poverty among white working class people, there has come the quasi-fascist figure of Trump. I think, as you and I were discussing this recently, that Trump has to face, oddly enough, the establishment, which is now thoroughly frightened. Uh, and Hillary Clinton is uniting what I suppose we'd see as these groups, and also liberal American opinion, aided, of course, by the fact of the sheer stupidity in political terms of Trump himself. It's hard to believe that politicians would say the silly things that Trump says in the public eye, but he is apparently uncontrollable, and his minders really can't get him to get his act together. I think we're probably looking in the American elections in a massive landslide in November, which will have effects around the world, because politicians like uh, Trump and populist, quasi-fascist politicians like Trump will have been seen to suffer a great defeat in the United States, and that's a good thing. There are people here in Australia, of course, if you look at our very own Pauline Hanson and her friends, you find pretty much the same viewpoints on a whole range of topics. It's no question that the recent federal elections provided these sorts of people with a, a public platform as she has. And indeed, in many ways, she's as stupid as Trump. Her right-wing views 
seemed to be based on the last person she spoke to. Uh, of course, everywhere, the far right has also taken up their opposition to the whole idea of global warming. And uh, one of these senators, uh, Roberts, in, in Queensland, who was on Q&A last night, Roberts is a classic example of a quasi-scientist who was beautifully taken apart, by the way, last night by an outstanding British scientist who was on the program and who had all the answers to the dissenting view of the anti-climate change warriors. And, of course, the person that Brian was talking about there was Brian Cox, a great person, and I watched that and... I watched it afterwards, actually, and you're just getting so exasperated, but the other fellow just sat there as if, you know, what can I do? Everyone's laughing at me. Anyway, that was historian and author Brian McKinlay, and it's great to have Brian doing a, a history segment every couple of weeks because I learn so much every week, every two weeks. Join Parkinson's Victoria for a walk in the park on Sunday the 28th of August at Federation Square. Enjoy a leisurely four-kilometre walk along the Yarra River and plenty of entertainment. Bring your family, friends and pet pooch to show your support for people living with Parkinson's. Register today at melbourne.parkinsonswalk.com.au It's as easy as a walk in the park. A 3CR supporter. The Western world, it would appear, is consumed by the presence of Islamic terrorism, not so much when it manifests in the Middle East, but in Europe. Today, an analysis of Zionist political violence or terrorism, not the present-day terrorism which Palestinians are subjected to on a daily basis in the occupied Palestinian territories, but historic. 22nd July marked the 70th anniversary of the King David Hotel bombing, a bombing that was planned by Menachem Bayan, who became the sixth Prime Minister of the State of Israel from 1977 to 1983. In that one terrorist attack, 90 died. British, Arab and Jews were murdered at the headquarters of the British Mandatory Government. I'm joined by activist for Palestine, Kim Bullimore. So, Kim, we need to recognise that terrorism by Zionists goes back to the early 20th century. A few days ago, on the 22nd of July, it was the 70th anniversary of the bombing of the King David Hotel in Palestine. The King David Hotel was the central offices for the British mandatory authorities in Palestine, so it sort of was the government building, the building that was housing the British government officials and uh, also the British armed forces. And so a terrorist attack was carried out against the building by the Uruguay, which was one of the Zionist terror groups at the time, but it had also been sanctioned by the Haganah, which was the primary 
militia group associated with the Zionist uh, labour movement during that time. They set off bombs in the building which had been taken in in milk crates. It ended up killing 91 people including British officers and workers as well as Palestinian Arabs and also Jews who were in the building. So it was one of the absolute worst attacks that had taken place back then. That was in 1946. But obviously uh, it was not the first example of Zionist terrorism uh, that had taken place during the mandate period. If you go back further in time, there were plenty of other attacks that have taken place. The Zionist movement beginning at settler colonial immigration into Palestine, you had around uh, in the, um, the first decade of the 20th century, you had what was set up were groups called like Bagoria and then later a group called Hashoma uh, who were in Zionist parlance defence groups which supposedly were originally set up to defend the Zionist colonies that were being established throughout Palestine and they were part of what was known as the conquest of labour which was basically replacing Arab Palestinian Arab guards that were guarding the colonies had been hired to guard the colonies at the time and replacing them. And if you look at Zionist historiography, groups like Bagoria and Hashoma are usually spoken about in you know, very glowing terms, very romanticised terms, how that they had come and they started to learn various different Arab ways of riding horses and, uh, the, you know, learning from the Bedouin and being able to fight and do all these things. But if you look at some of the more recent historiography looking at these groups, looking at alternative sources, from example, settlement archives, letters written by other settlers at the time, various things like that, they've actually shown that these groups were actually quite violent, particularly to the Arab workers who were at the time still working in the settlements and also to the neighbouring Arab villages and there was a number of clashes and things that went on. Uh, Hashoma disbanded in, if I get the year right, I think it was in around 1920 and that was the establishment of the Haganah, which was the main, as I said, the main militia associated with the Labour Zionist movement, which was the key movement in the Zionist movement at the time. Ostensibly, these groups are always pitched as being defence groups, but as time went on, they became more and more aggressive and they were actually starting to carry out various attacks on Palestinian villages, on Palestinian townships and things like that. Particularly when you get into the 1930s period, you see these clashes increasing happening there. And in the 1930s, uh, during what was known as the Palestinian Revolt, obviously there's a battle going on between both the Zionist forces and the Palestinian Arab resistance to settler colonialism. But you see during the 1930s increasing levels of actual terrorist attacks taking place, uh, particularly carried out by groups like the Urban and, that, and there's lots of examples, if you look at the historiography of it, of attacks taking place which were quite violent. Up until this period, there's usually when you look at Zionist historiography, up until this period, you see a denial from the mainstream Zionist movement 
to the acts of what the groups of like the Irrigan are uh, carrying out in the 1930s period during the, the Great Revolt. The mainstream Zionist movement adopted a thing which was known as Havlagar, which means restraint. This is the development of the idea of the purity of arms that you now see used by the Haganah today, as, I'm sorry, the um, uh, Israeli occupation forces today. This idea is, is that we will be restrained in our attacks and we will only attack if we're attacked. Uh, that was the primary idea. But if you actually look at the development of how Havlagar look uh, emerged over that period from 1936 to 1939, you see that it actually turns and starts to be quite aggressive. And many of the attacks that have been carrying out are being uh, there are preemptive attacks being carried out on Palestinian towns and villages, but they're still couched in the terms of being defensive. Basically, Havlagar was strategic. It was a strategic idea to maintain British support for the Zionist movement. That's what Ben-Gurion in particular was concerned with, was they knew that they weren't strong enough at the time as a movement to take full control of Palestine, and they still needed British support. When you get into the 1940s, when uh, the Zionist movement actually starts to feel that it's strong enough, you then start to see these outright attacks start taking place on British targets by the Zionist movement, which are carried out by the Irrigan and the Haganah and the various other smaller Zionist militias and terror groups. So you get things like the King David bombing, you get bombings of Palestinian marketplaces uh, in Haifa and places like that. There's attacks on a number of assassinations carried out against British officials uh, and so this is not unusual so the idea that somehow that the Israeli state was built on peace and restraint by the Zionist movement is of course a load of baloney it, it didn't happen that way at all so yeah so and when you look at the terror groups that carried out a lot of these actions, the Irrigan, the Haganah and all that, they later become the basis of the modern-day Israeli Defence Forces after the creation of the Israeli state in 1948. In those decades leading up to 1948, where were these groups getting their finances from? They got their funding from a variety of places. Often they would go to the US and other places and appeal for public support and various things like that and often they would receive funds from various uh, sympathetic supporters and people like that. Uh, often they were making, uh, particularly in the, you know, sort of in the, the late 30s and 40s, they were, they were making their own munitions. Uh, there was lots of underground workshops and things like that where some of the groups had sent members to Europe and other places like that to actually get training in how to make munitions and they would come back and they would make that. A lot of other times they would steal the munitions so often there was a, between the British and the Zionist movement, there was uh, official sort of armed forces where the various Zionist groups, they would have official sanctions to be able to carry guns or do particular act as police forces or some sort of military force. And uh, there was often lots of looting from that as well sort of thing. Other examples was they often smuggled in munitions and guns again uh, having received support and funding from overseas they would smuggle that in uh, into Palestine as well you know there was famous cases of there's one particular 
I can't remember which year it was, one particular year, when uh, they were bringing in munitions and guns in barrels uh, and the barrels were dropped accidentally at one of the ports, I think it was in Yaffa. It smashed open and then, you know, all the all the smuggled goods were, were there to be seen. And, of course, this, in, this increased tensions with Palestinians who were already you know, concerned that they were losing their land, that the Zionist movement was not interested in, you know, uh, actually living together or sharing the land or anything like that, but instead that they were about, you know, establishing a state that which, which would either drive the Palestinians out or make them a political minority. Is it true to say that the British Mandatory Authority was assisting the, the Zionists to force the Palestinians out? And if that's true, why then did the terrorists bomb the British hotel? I wouldn't say that they were forcing them out, but they, there was obviously cohesion between the British and the Zionist movement for a, a considerable period of time. You had Britain at the end of World War One, along with the French and others who wanted to come in to Palestine and the Middle East and take control of it after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. And basically there was oil in the area, so they wanted oil, also made their trade routes shorter coming from uh, India up through, you know, the areas through the Middle East. There was also... Uh, important ports, Haifa and places like that were important. Uh, so, you know, Britain had a particular imperialist reason to be in Palestine and in the Middle East, same as the French and, you know, uh, as well. So this was important. So their imperialist intentions happened to coincide with what the Zionists wanted to do in Palestine as well. So they became this, not allegiance, but they became allied for this reason. In the early days, it wasn't necessarily that the, that the British actually supported the Zionist gold, per se, of establishing a Zionist state. Actually, there were many actually anti-Semitic members of the British government at that time. So they weren't pro-Zionist, per se, because they supported the Zionist movement, but they saw it as a way of advancing the British goals in the Middle East. So when the Balfour Declaration was established in 1917, a letter that was sent by the British Foreign Minister at the time, saying that uh, Lord Balfour saying, you know, that we will support the establishment of a Jewish national homeland in Palestine, in that it actually says that it should be established without detriment to the Indigenous population. But Britain always saw their relationship with the Zionist movement as more key than their relationship with the Palestinian Arabs uh, because, you know, they wanted to be able to achieve certain goals and things in Palestine for Britain's own needs. In the later period in time when things started to change, as I said earlier, Basically, Ben-Gurion in particular, as one of the key leaders of the Zionist movement later in the you know late 1920s and 30s and 40s, it was a very strategic relationship that the Zionists had with the British. They basically uh, knew that they, as a movement, the Zionist movement, was not strong enough to be able to go into Palestine by itself and um, establish a Zionist state. They needed a colonial backer and the colonial backer in this case was Britain. So up until they became strong enough, had established their own militias that were strong enough and well enough trained, who had basically been trained by the 
the British. Uh, once they were strong enough, that's when they then turned on Britain and saw the time to say, well, OK, now we're going to fight Britain as a colonising force uh, and we're going to try and drive them out so then we can establish a Zionist state as we have wanted to do from the beginning. You know, it was a, a very complicated relationship. It wasn't something that was there. So, But, the, but you know, Britain... Be- like it was in many other places when it went into India and other places like that, they, you know, tried to establish control by working with various different groups in those areas. And of course, once the State of Israel was declared, those Zionist Jewish leaders became politicians and two of them became prime ministers and one, for God knows what reason, was given the Nobel Peace Prize. Yes, well, you know, many many of the people who had been key leaders in the Zionist movement uh, had, as you said, took on uh, roles in the leadership of the newly established Israeli state. I mean, that's unsurprising in many levels because, you know, this is ob- that has obviously been the goal of the Zionist movement. Uh, and obviously when they were able to achieve that in 1948, of course, those key leaders were now going to take on key roles in the state. Not surprising at all sort of thing. I mean, I think the main thing to remember about this period and looking at it is is that there was a complicated relationship between the British and the Zionists. It wasn't always smooth sailing. And then you had, within the Zionist movement, groups like the Irrigan and the Stern Gang and all of these groups who didn't necessarily agree with the strategic position that Ben-Gurion had taken of that, you know, we have to keep working with the British until we're strong enough. Basically, groups like the Irrigan and the Serengan and that, they wanted to basically go all in straight away. They didn't want to play the strategic game, which is why you often saw them, uh, you know, carrying out much more aggressive acts of terrorism and things as compared to the Haganah. But, you know, the difference was strategic. The, The main difference between what was sort of known as the right wing of the Zionist movement and the so-called left wing, the Labour Zionist movement headed up by Ben-Gurion, was that it was strategy. It was a strategy of do we try and go go alone by ourselves now or do we keep cultivating our relationship with the British until we are strong enough to be able to then go in and do what we want to be able to do. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. It's Jan Bartlett and I'm speaking with activist for Palestine, Kim Bullimore. The Zionists failed to expel all Arabs from their new state of Israel and today mm-hmm. roughly 21% of Israeli citizens are Arabs mm-hmm. and there are a small number in the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, However, there is a new bill which which has recently been passed to get rid of Palestinian MPs from the Knesset. Is this a reaction to a speech by Hanan Zori concerning compensation for the families of those murdered on the Turkish ship taking relief aid to Gaza? Look, it's a long-running thing. I mean, that's part of it, but it's not the only thing. I mean, basically, uh, we had... 20th of July, the Knesset passed what was known as the dismissal law, which basically allows for the ousting of a sitting legislator. To do that, they have to be able to have a majority of lawmakers uh, in the Knesset vote for this, which is not, they have to have 90, but they can start to 
initiate expulsion procedures with only 70 votes of the 120 members sort of thing. So basically the idea behind this law is to expel really any of the Palestinian Arabs members that are in the Knesset. It's supposedly you, the, the, the basis for expelling um, people is for uh, either engaging supposedly in racism or calling in, it into the security, uh, damaging the security of the Israeli state. As you said, Hanin Zenobi has been a long target of, uh, he's from the party Balad, has been a long target of the Knesset Zionists. This is not the first type of law that's been introduced like that. For years and years and years, there's been a whole range of different laws either being attempted to be introduced or actually introduced, which have specifically sought to try and limit not only the free speech of the Palestinian Arabs in the in the Knesset, but to prevent either to kick them out of the Knesset or even stop them from running. So, for example, in 2002, Hanin Zenobi, I think it was the second time that it's happened, uh, she was, or maybe that was the first time, she was basically one of the subgroups of the Knesset passed a thing preventing her from being able to run in the elections, to stop her actually running in the election to be elected again to the Knesset. She took this to the um, um, the Supreme Court and it was overturned and so of course she could run. But this is something that the Arab members of the Knesset have to face all the time. The basis of this particular law was supposedly because Zenobi and two of her fellow members from Ballard had supposedly met with the families of some of the people who'd carried out the knife attacks at different times over the last few months. Now, Zenobi and her fellow legislators say, well, no, actually, we're at a meeting for the reparation of Palestinian bodies. Because often what happens is if there's supposedly terrorist, terrorist attacks carried out, the bodies of whoever's carried out is not, particularly if they're Palestinian, is not given back. Often Israel will hold those bodies hostage, sometimes for years, before giving them back to the family. So uh, Zenobi and her fellow lawmakers said, well, actually, we're at a meeting to discuss the reparations of these of the bodies, and of course, the family members were there. So it's a real distortion of attacks on, on the Palestinian Arab members, and the idea is to, you know, try and silence them, to actually exclude them from parliamentary procedures, to exclude them from parliament altogether. And this, these attacks come on the back of other attacks. For example, the latest attacks on the NGOs, which is, you know, is a specific attack on left-wing NGOs who receive foreign funding. And they're being attacked because they are reporting on Israel's human rights abuses against the Palestinians. So there's an attempt to silence them. There's also, you know, obviously laws against um, the BDS movement and calling for boycott. There's a whole range of laws. I mean, if you talk, look at Adala, which is uh, one of the legal centres that supports minority rights, Palestinian minority rights inside Israel, according to their da databases, there's more than 50 laws that actively discriminate against non-Jewish citizens of Israel. These latest laws, while outrageous, are not surprising. They're not shocking. They're pretty much par for the course. How many Arabs are there in the Knesset? I'd imagine only a small number. I think there's something like about 13 or 14. I can't remember. There's the Arab joint list, there's Balad, 
and then there's also Hadash, which is a mixed Jewish-Palestinian party. Well, look, the fact that they want to get rid of them completely, does that mean that they're having an impact? I don't know if it's about having an impact, but it's. I think what it reveals more than anything is the right-wing nature of Israeli politics. I think right. that's what it reveals more than anything. I mean, obviously, the Zionist movement is a very reactionary and right-wing movement in general. And what we have seen, particularly in the last maybe 10 years, is an even bigger, harder shift to the hard right. I mean, supposedly, you know, in the in the 60s and 70s, you supposedly had an Israeli uh, a Zionist sort of left and a Zionist right wing. You know, obviously, as I mentioned earlier, the Labour Zionist movement had been the dominant component of the Zionist movement up until about the sort of seven, 1970s. And then they were kind of ousted. They had been historically that in the British mandate period and they had been in control in the you know 50s and 60s. And in the 70s, they were basically ousted by the right wing of the movement. What we have seen increasingly is the harder right taking control. So you had, you know, you had the right wing, but you had then the sort of middle centrist right, and then you had the hard right. What we've seen in the last five to 10 years is the dominance of the very hard right. And so these policies are reflective of the hard right. I mean, this current policy, for example, law that has just been passed has been supported by Netanyahu, been supported by the, the Prime Minister. What we're just seeing is a complete domination of the hard right, which will not allow for any any sort of deviation from the hard right ideological point of view and um, stance, which is dominating Israel as a state and a, a, and generally, you know, as as a society. Unfortunately, and of course, an example of that hard right is Lieberman the Soviet-born Israeli politics, who was mm-hmm. now the Minister for Defence, and incidentally he lives in a, illegally in an occupied colony in Palestine. He's called for the banning of Mahud Darwish, a poet. Yes. Why? That's right. Yeah, well, one, from his poems, from the airways, yes. Mahmoud Darwish, if people don't know, is a, a Palestinian poet. He is considered the Palestinian national poet. He died in 2008, but he grew up inside the Israeli state. Uh, his family was part of the internally displaced Palestinian refugees who were internally displaced inside of what became the Israeli state in 1948. And his poems, are, uh, you know, are quite Quite beautiful, and they often express the you know the Palestinian people's humanity, chronicling not only their joys but also their anger and sadness at the dispossession and oppression that they're facing as a result of the Nakba and the Zionist state. And so, uh, Darwish's poems have always drawn controversy. From the Israeli state, you know, there's, this is not the first time that there's been a call for the banning of his poetry. <laughs> his poems have been called for ba- been called for banning by various Zionist leaders for decades, sort of thing. Particularly during the first Intifada, he wrote a number of very famous, very angry poems at the height of the first Intifada, and you know, they were quite 
outraged the uh, the Knesset uh, members and that, and there were calls in the Israeli Knesset for his poems to be banned and uh, him to be expelled and various other things like that. So what happened in this particular case uh, the other day was uh, the Israeli Army Radio, of all places, actually broadcast one of Darwish's most famous poems, a poem that was written back in about 1964 called Identity Card. And the poem basically is looking at the plight of Palestinian Arabs inside the Israeli state at the time. Between 1949 and 1966, Palestinian Arabs were forced to live under martial law inside the Israeli state. Now, this martial law didn't apply to the Jewish citizens of Israel. It only applied to the Palestinian Arabs. And it basically controlled every aspect of their life. So it meant it controlled where they could be employed, where they could go to school, what political activity they could do. Well, actually, they weren't allowed to do any political activity. Basically, all political organisations, Arab organisations, were banned. It also meant that Palestinian villages inside Israel were regularly subject to to curfew and often that Palestinians had to have permits to be able to just move from village to village. So even if it was a village next door to you, you had to have permits and that to be able to go backwards and forwards. And, you know, often, you know, sort of what's happening in the West Bank was happening inside of Israel, basically. Uh, so in this particular poem, it's about uh, an Arab man confronting or being confronted by an Israeli soldier who wants to check his idea and basically the poem says, as you know, right, uh, I'll read a little bit out. It says, write down, I am an Arab. My identity card is 50,000. I have eight children and the nights will come after summer. Will you be angry? Write down, I am an Arab. Employed with fellow workers at a quarry. I have eight children. I get them bread, garments and books from the rocks. I do not supplicate charity at your doors, nor do I belittle myself at the footsteps of your chamber. So will you be angry? Write down, I am an Arab. I have a name without a title, patient in a country where the people are enraged. My roots were entrenched before the birth of time and before the opening of the eras. It's an angry poem, but it's also a poem that is basically saying, you know, just asserting Palestinian identity. That's basically what it's doing. So, you know, this poem is, is by far probably the best known particularly translated into English, of Darwish's poems. And so this is the poem that Lieberman has found so outrageous, along with uh, Miri Regrev, who is the former spokesperson for the Israeli military and who is now the, I think it's the cultural minister for Israel. She backed Lieberman's calls. And what was worse was Lieberman actually compared that poem to Hitler's Mein Kampf saying, well, you know, if we allow Darwish to be broadcast on the radio, then does that mean we're going to, or, you know, it's no different to broadcasting Hitler's Mein Kampf, you know, and it's a ridiculous, ridiculous comparison to make between the two, you know, to compare Darwish's poem, which is about resistance to settler colonial repression and oppression, to Hitler's manifesto is absolutely outrageous. But as I said, Darwish's poems have long been viewed as dangerous by the Israeli state, precisely because they articulate not only the Palestinian narrative, but because they are part of the Palestinian people's resistance to settler colonial oppression. You know, Darwish's poem is a threat because, in part, it represents Palestinian sabud, which is steadfastness. So that despite 
everything that's been done to the Palestinians as a result of the Israeli state. Palestinians are still there. They're still resisting. They're still asserting who they are and their identity. So this is the strength of Darwish's poems. And, you know, I would encourage people, if they haven't read or heard of any poems, they can obviously just have a look on the internet. You'll find them quite easily. There's a number of translations that have been done. Uh, and also, for example, a number of years ago, Marcel Khalifa, a very well-known uh, Lebanese musician, actually turned a lot of Darwish's poems into musical pieces, which he has performed at a range of concerts and things like that, which are absolutely stunning and very beautiful. So, you know, Darwish is not the only Palestinian poet. There's many other ones out there that people could check out, but he is definitely one that they should, you know, if they want to get a sense of this sort of on-the-ground struggle and resistance and voice of the Palestinian people, Darwish very much conveys that. How on earth did the poem get onto the Army Radio? My understanding is, is that particular program that it was on was about looking at the history of a variety of different documents that have related to the various things that have happened historically within the Israeli state. That's my understanding of it. And you've been listening to Palestinian supporter, activist for Palestine, Kim Bullimore. And it's just after five o'clock. I'm here till six. Coming up, we hear more from the anti-war movement, the women's part in the anti-war movement before, during World War One. We'll be hearing from Debbie Brennan about the arrest of the so-called patriot, Philip Galea, and James Petrus looking at the who brought on the coup, the counter-coup, the failed coup in Turkey. <laughs> 3CR are selling kefir, Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. The Brunswick-Coburg Anti-Conscription Commemoration Campaign has been organising many events to commemorate the 100th anniversary. One was a recent free public meeting at St Ambrose Community Centre in Sydney Road, Brunswick, and the speaker was historian Dr Judith Smart. And her topic was Opposing War, Women's Protest in World War I, comprising the food rights, anti-conscription campaigning and the 1917 Story Hall Workers' Commune. The first part of the interview will be on next and the second part on the program next week. This is Dr Judith Smart. When feminist historians led by Carmel Shute a long, long time ago, in 1975, first started writing about the part played by women on the Australian home front during the Great War. 
They stressed the negative effects. As Shute wrote in an article that she published, Heroines and Heroes, Sexual Mythology in Australia, 1914 to 1918, the mythology engendered by the Great War affirmed the dichotomy of the sexes and re-established the enshrined inviolability of the traditional sexual stereotypes of man, the warrior and creator of history, and woman, the mother, the passive flesh at the mercy of fate, or rather man. Women, she continued, were expected to fulfil the traditional role of watching and waiting and to confine themselves to tasks that serviced the real work being done by men. Since then, though, revisionist critiques have emphasised activism and positive outcomes of the war for women. And certainly the war did encourage participation by women in public life on a much more extensive scale than at any previous time in the nation's history. Not only did this involve patriotic fundraising and comforts work, which was indeed largely undertaken by women, mostly through the Red Cross, it also included recruitment and extension of pre-war moral reform movements, focusing particularly on drink, prostitution and venereal disease. Furthermore, radical women engaged in pacifist and anti-conscription activities, as well as in street protests in support of striking husbands and sons. But the issue with which women of most classes were primarily concerned on a daily basis during the war years was the cost of living. And this gave rise not only to consumer organisation but also to food rights. Women thus gained substantial experience in organisation and management as well as in public speaking and demonstrations. And this stood them in good stead for there was unprecedented growth in women's organisations of all kinds in the wake of the war and in the willingness of ordinary women to become involved. Today, I'm focusing on radical protests and anti-war political activism, so I'm ignoring the middle classes mostly. The former, that is, radical protests, the former included street demonstrations and disruption of meetings that recalled traditional forms of protest while also signalling a transition to more modern forms. Among the traditional forms of protest of relevance here were food riots. The underlying popular consensus that legitimated periodic pre-industrial bread or food rights has been called moral economy to distinguish it from our common term modern economic rationalism, quite different beast. Any significant outrage to the accepted notion of moral economy or common wheel, such as soaring prices, malpractices among dealers or middlemen, shortages and consequent hunger could justify direct action in redress. A riot, then, was the signal of malfunction, not an irrational and mindless act of violence. The rioters typically were the respectable poor who aimed at restitution of what they saw as their normal condition. They didn't aim at revolution or radical reform. The traditional food riot was very much, though, a female protest. It was women who noticed the first pangs of hunger in their families and who had to deprive themselves, to thieve, lie, prostitute their bodies and ultimately spill over into riot. During the 19th century, other types of popular protests also emerged, focusing on new economic issues, ones connected with the Industrial Revolution, enclosures and machine-breaking by the Luddites, for example. And all of them included substantial numbers of women concerned to defend their homes and families. Working class, as well as some middle-class women, also became involved in the 1840s Chartist movement for radical political reform and democratic representation. Later on, it was as the wives and daughters of strikers that working-class women took to the streets too. It's not surprising that many of these traditional forms of protest should have migrated to Australia along with convicts, gold-seekers and settlers. And nor is it surprising that the traditional forms of protest 
should have been preserved longer by women whose domestic roles focused attention on spending and consumption. Rather than making money, they were principally concerned as workmen's wives and the providers of food to spend <coughs> it wisely. During World War I in Australia, there are notable examples of protests by women that have many of the characteristics of traditional riots and disruptive tactics, both political and economic, before women's political protest, like men's, was finally <coughs> channelled into conventional and ordered, more permanent forms of party political organisation. Continuation of popular ideas about justice and moral economy underpinned women's participation in two quite different but related protest movements during the Great War in Melbourne. One about a specifically political issue, that is conscription, the other about the cost of living, which included the nearest that one can come to a modern food riot. Both saw a series of spontaneous outbreaks led by women and espousing a quite clearly identifiable notion of traditional moral rights. But in both cases, it's important to note the transitional character of the protests because they were also linked, however informally, to the organised labour movement and tinged with the rhetoric of socialism. One example of the latter was the establishment by radical anti-war feminists of a commune in 1917 to assist wharf labourers who struck to prevent export of flour. The Commune was a quite self-consciously socialist and feminist attempt at alternative political organisation. Incidentally, we can also see non-labour attempts to bring about institutional change to redress the rising prices of food, because the cost of living protest movement was also bound up with middle-class women's efforts to form a mass women's consumer organisation which, after the war, drew in some thousands of women from all classes. Now, I'm dividing the rest of what I've got to say tonight about women's anti-war activism in Melbourne into three sections, and they're, they're three sections that were listed on the brochure. First of all, women's protests against inscription in 1916, and second, the 1917 cost-of-living activism and demonstrations, and third, the Guildhall Commune set up by women to support striking wharf labourers in 1917. So first of all, conscription. One of the war's earliest effects was on working-class living standards, as we shall see, and it was the women who bore the brunt of the struggle to feed their families. It was all the harder if the menfolk of the family had enlisted, and they would suffer much greater deprivation than their middle-class sisters if husbands or fathers or sons were killed or incapacitated. These women were probably partly responsible for the declining enlistments in the armed forces by 1916. By then, the numbers of incapacitated returned soldiers and the lengthening casualty list had overshadowed an earlier tendency to see the war as an alternative source of employment. Working-class wives and mothers were refusing to allow husbands and sons to enlist. And my grandmother in Carlton was one of them. I remember my aunt telling me that one night my great-uncle, grandmother's brother, was killed in 1918. And uh, my grandfather then went out and got pissed with his mates, as you would expect, and you know, ran all around Carlton and came home. Then he went and enlisted. And uh, he came home and told my grandmother that he'd enlisted. And she just looked at him and said... If you're lucky enough to come back, you're not coming back here. And next morning, I think in the cold grey light of dawn, presumably with a hangover, he took the two oldest children uh, by the hand and went up to the local Church of England, St Jude's in Carlton, and got the minister to intervene to get him out. But this is clearly an example of, of a working-class woman saying, you're not going, you know. <laughs> 
It's also, I think, significant that after the manpower census uh, in 1915, when enlistment cards were sent out to eligible men throughout Australia at the end of 1915, in the working-class suburb of Richmond, only 4,200 out of 8,000 replied, and most of them refused. Large numbers of working-class women were prepared to stand up against the war and against restrictions on their liberty if they believed their families or their class were under attack. Their cause was thus partly a maternal one, one based on the protection of the home and the belief that home and family were the core of national identity. It's likely many believed it was their role as citizens to vote accordingly. And we have to remember that unlike women in most of the other belligerent nations, Australian women had the vote. It's not surprising then that much of the propaganda directed to them focused on their roles as mothers and nurturers. The powerful anti-war message of the American song performed by Women's Peace Army leader Cecilia John, I Didn't Raise My Boy to Be a Soldier, was symptomatic. So popular did it become that it was banned under the War Proportions Act. Meanwhile, pro-conscriptionist and pro-war women emphasised the sacrifice their enlisted sons were making to protect their own families as well as other women's sons who had stayed at home. Now, this was a highly emotive sort of argument and it encouraged an emotive response. Australia was the only belligerent nation to ask its citizens to vote in a plebiscite on whether conscription for overseas service should be introduced. And the period encompassing the two, occasion, the two occasions on which nationwide votes were taken, it's October 1916 and December 1917, was one of unprecedented political polarisation, bitterness and violence. The anti-conscriptionists won narrowly on both occasions, but it was a pyrrhic victory in terms of its long-term and divisive effects on the nation and its weakening of the labour movement uh, for some period afterwards. Conscription as an issue was argued out by most supporters and opponents on intellectual, ethical and rational grounds in the terminology of the rights and liberties of the individual in relation to the needs and rights of the state. And that's the way most historians since then have also tended to look at it because they've relied on what was written and what was said. Thus it appears as if the issue was essentially one of conflicting political principles within the dominant discourse of liberalism and democracy. Now certainly that's one important way of seeing it, but it's not the only way, and it focuses solely on the articulate minority and especially on men. It is, I would suggest, a matter of doubt whether all the modern arguments about abstract concepts like liberty, honour, duty freedom, etc., were of major importance in most working-class people's, especially women's, decision how to vote. Women conducted campaigns specifically directed towards their own sex. The Labor Women's Anti-Conscription Committee, formed in September 1916, joined forces with other left-wing anti-war women to form the United Women's No Conscription Committee. Members came from the Labor Party, as well as the Socialist Party, and the Women's Peace Army and the Women's Political Association. Among the organisers were Sarah Lewis, Jean Daly, Elizabeth Wallace, Vida Goldstein, Bella Geeran, also known as Bella Lavender. Other well-known members included Adela Pankhurst, Jenny Baines, Muriel Hegney and Mary Kaluri. Members conducted house-to-house visits. They organised the distribution of anti-conscription literature. They arranged cottage meetings and rallies, spoke on platforms at the Yarra Bank and addressed factory workers during their lunch hour. Open-air gatherings were held throughout the suburbs where possible. In the first week of October, separate meetings were held on the one night at the Socialist Hall and the Guildhall, now Story Hall, in the city, 
where Women's Political Association and the Women's Peace Army and the Victorian Socialist Party shared the platform. The Socialists recorded afterwards that the two halls were packed to the doors. On the 21st of October 1916, a women's no conscription demonstration and procession took place in the city, with four to 6,000 women marching from the Guild Hall in Swanson Street to the Yarra Bank. Do any of you know the Guild Hall now? It's the, now Story Hall at RMIT. Yeah. When it was refurbished a few years ago, it, they deliberately used purple, white and green colours to signify that it had been involved in um, feminist activism. Have a look at it when you when you want to buy sometime. And inside it, it similarly uses the purple, white, and green um, colour scheme. This crowd gathered as it as it went and uh, swelled to eighty thousand by the time they got down to Princess Bridge and uh, the Arab Bank. They were led by an eight-year-old, Madeline Gardner, which is <laughs> quite nice, I think, really, uh, dressed in white and carrying a wand topped with a feathered dove of peace. And behind her, there were two young girls with a banner proclaiming, "A little child shall lead them." And these were members of the Children's Peace Army. Cecilia John followed on horseback, dressed like many others in the purple, white and green colours of the English suffragette movement, which the Women's Political Association had also adopted. The procession also included eight lorries uh, with tableaus of various kinds and cars for the elderly and disabled. It did not proceed unchallenged, but returned soldiers who tried to disrupt it and who attacked some of the women, and one woman had a piece of her finger bitten off, were repelled by others and by unionists. According to Vida Goldstein's biographer, it was the first time that Australian women had walked together in a peace procession. Sympathetic male activist F.J. Riley described the scene. The women's demonstration was a gigantic success, he wrote. In fact, we expected a procession, but we never expected to see the crowd of women who marched. The procession was over a mile long, extending from the Guild Hall right to the road that led to the Yarra Bank. During the afternoon, from about six platforms, speeches were delivered, all of which were listened to attentively. But there were other forms of demonstration during October too, and these were more spontaneous, and they came from the grassroots. In 1916, it was not just the principle of compulsion, but also, at least as importantly, the way in which the public debate was conducted that emphasised other, more immediate meanings of freedom and raised them to a new level of intensity. And that's Dr Judith Smart speaking at a public meeting recently at the hall, the St Ambrose Community Centre Hall in Sydney Road. And on the program next week, I'll be playing the second part of her talk. Now, if you're interested in the anti-conscription campaign, which went from 1916 to 1917 and actually defeated the conscription moves by the, the governments, There is another meeting next Monday evening, and it's about Frank Anstey. If you live out in the Brunswick-Coburg area, you would know that the railway station is called Anstey in the Brunswick area. And this meeting is the 22nd of August, which is next Monday, 6.30pm, and I'll just read out the flyer. The name was named after... The station named after him, that's Frank Anstey, but did you know that this Brunswick resident led the successful campaign against conscription during World War I. Join Frank Anstey's biographer, Dr Peter Love, who's the president of the Labor History Society, to hear more about our neighbourhood's colourful history. Where? St Ambrose Community Centre, 287 Sydney Road in Brunswick, and that's just near Glenmine Road, and it's 6.30 until 8pm next 
Monday evening and hopefully I'll be able to play that talk in future programs as well. But as I said, the second part of Judith's program will be on the program next week. Ahoy there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St Kilder. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going, Ah, ah, ah. That stands for reuse, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3C. Some might assume that the arrest and charging of a patriot, Philip Galea, after a sting by Victoria Joint Counter-Terrorism Team, would be welcomed by those who are usually the target of right-wing extremists, Muslims, workers, women, etc. But although on one level this is true, on another alarm bells ring loudly as more and more police powers and anti-terror laws are introduced in our society. And the target could well be those who confront the far right. Debbie Brennan is a spokesperson for the Campaign Against Fascism and Racism. And when we spoke yesterday, I asked her for her first reaction to the news that Galea had been arrested and charged. You've been to many demonstrations where you maintain that the police support the far right against your groups. Well, my first reaction was realising that this is the first ever time that Commonwealth terrorism laws have been used against an extreme right activist. The fact that he was charged this time, I was aware that his place had been raided before, he had been charged before, that he has not been taken anywhere as seriously as the police and the state authorities pounce on Muslim men usually. So I think my first reaction to that was the glaring hypocrisy. What's been the reaction of the other far-right groups to his arrest? There hasn't been any. That's a very interesting thing, that neither has, say, One Nation been saying anything that I'm aware of, the Liberal Party that has far-right personalities, such as Corey Bernardi and George Christensen, who have been very closely aligned with groups like Reclaim Australia and so on. The Liberal Party saying nothing about that. So there's no commentary coming out about it. All we know in the news is that he was, he was arrested and charged. No other men or women in other states have been arrested? Not necessarily this particular raid, but charged with similar things. As far as I know, Galea is the only one from the far right who's been charged under these terrorism laws, that um, instead the pattern has been that the terrorism laws have been used very quickly and very harshly against Muslims. We haven't really heard what he's been charged or why he's been charged, have we? I don't think that we have seen the actual details. In fact, all that I've seen in the media, and that's my only source, is uh, that they have found things. But the news seems to be, or the information seems to be very guarded. 
on one level you should be happy about this but on the other level it's like that phrase that that story they came for me and no one did anything do you feel as though that you might be the second on the list yeah, i got to say, I don't feel at all happy about this. My response, and again, I'm speaking also for Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, so our response is that we, first of all, do not look to the, the police and the state authorities to use terrorism laws to deal with the far right. We don't see that as any solution. As you just suggested, the reason we don't is that we know that that is just an amping up of the use of those laws that would be more likely used against the likes of us who are out there countering the fascists and the far right and also amping up their powers to go after they usually do Muslims and people from targeted immigrant communities. So that certainly is what we're responding to. The other response that we've had about this is that the fact that this has come to light, that they have charged Galea, and we have known about Galea long before this particular raid, is that this is showing what the far right and fascist groups are prepared to do. And we know that Galea himself has said that he's been a member of Reclaim Australia, he's been a member of the United Patriots Front, and he is also now very closely working with the fascist True Blue crew. So we can see what they're capable of. And the thing that worries us very much, too, is that the electoral success of the far-right One Nation is emboldening these groups. It was a bit alarming this morning just to see, for example, that the fascist Freedom Party up in Gosford, New South Wales, had assaulted with megaphones and Islamophobic rants the Anglican church up there during a church service. So that kind of violence in whatever form, including the most extreme form, is something that we should be very worried about. What should the police be doing rather than using these counter-terrorism laws? Well, you know, I don't factor the police into the picture of how we're going to be stopping the fascist threat because the police and the state authorities generally are not there to stop them. We know from history of countering fascists, and certainly in the last year and a half we've seen it, that the police protect the fascists. They protect the fascists against the anti-fascists, those of us who do hit the streets to counter the fascists. We don't look to them for any promise whatsoever. We really concentrate more on what we need to do as anti-fascists. And we see that rather than looking to anti-terrorism laws or whatever other laws, and probably more likely tightening those laws, that we should be looking to a solution which is to build a very strong and broad anti-fascist movement. By the way, we should remember that the police are also calling for anti-mask laws 
And we know that those laws are aimed against anti-fascists. So another reason why we just don't factor the police into any idea of a solution. But as I said before, that makes it all the more curious why they have arrested this man. It is curious, and I suppose we can only speculate on why they did. I don't know if possibly they want to look neutral. I mean, they've had their image out there in terms of their very unneutral actions. Um, hasn't been very good, so that may be a factor, but whatever the really compelling factor to do that at this particular time is really hard to pin down right now. Will we see the anti-terrorism laws being tightened? I wouldn't be surprised. I could imagine too that the, the court hearings will be censored in some way. Probably so. Now there's also the fact of these groups, they seem to be popping up everywhere. I know there's not a lot in them. You've talked about Reclaim Australia, the United Patriots Front, the True Blue Crew, and you mentioned another one a moment ago, mm. yet they don't seem to be increasing in size. They may make a lot of noise, but they don't seem to be getting that many cohorts coming in and joining them. Is that correct or not? Yeah, that's a good point, Jan. They are fragmented. They are small, just as you say. I think that one reason for that is that there has been that constant counter-mobilization against them whenever they show their faces. So over the last year and a half, the organizing that's been done by anti-fascist coalitions and the united fronts such as Campaign Against Racism and Fascism has had that effect of holding them back. The thing is we want to do more than hold them back. We, we, we really need to just wipe them off the face of the earth, um, make them disappear which is why we need a stronger movement. But having said that, I think the worry is that we can see them coalescing around one nation. So, for example, the United Patriots Front is very friendly with one nation. I believe that they even offered to be Pauline Hansen's bodyguards. They were strongly supporting the candidacy of one nation during the election. The Freedom Party, which just did that assault on the Gosford Anglican Church. They're very close to One Nation. And in fact, Reclaim Australia is very close to Pauline Hanson because she's been a very popular speaker at all of their rallies. So One Nation is potentially a galvanizing point for these far-right and fascist groups. And that's what we see that we're facing, is that potential and that's why Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, is our work from now on, from this point, is going to be to be building a movement to counter that. In fact, I'll just mention that in September, the, de the details are still being worked out, but listeners should be looking out for a public forum by Campaign Against Racism and Fascism in September about this very thing. Are you learning any lessons from Europe with the, the far-right groups and the, the opposition to them there? Certainly, absolutely, because we are part of, of the rest of the world and we certainly know that what's happening here is not a unique thing to Australia, it's connected. And in fact, we know that these groups 
are connected to each other internationally. So what we're learning from what's been happening in Europe, for example, is the absolute necessity and urgency of building a very strong and broad united front against the fascists. Campaign against racism and fascism are wanting very, very much to be expanding, and we urge groups, LGBTIQ, Aboriginal, Union, all groups to be coming in on the united front, because as you alluded to earlier, first they came for Muslims, and they're certainly now coming after the left, but they're going to be coming after everybody else. And those of us, us working class people, know whether we are LGBTIQ or Aboriginal or Unionists, we know that we're on their radar and that we're in their sights. Just look at One Nation, for example, and the fact that they're not only virulently Islamophobic, they have their history of being anti-Asian, anti-Aboriginal, and they also are working with men's rights groups. So they've got a very horrible misogynist agenda as well. Again, learning from Europe is that we've got to be building that united front, and particularly we need unions to come in because unions are where the working class are organized and know how to take this united action. I'd imagine you're in contact with the unions? Yes, we are. And we certainly have an INCARF, the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. The core of our membership are are unionists. Okay, and if people want to get involved? Yes, well, what they should do, if they haven't seen Campaign Against Racism and Fascism's Facebook, they should do that, but they should also text the following number of Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, and they will then get notifications about what we're doing and how they can get involved. And that number is 0422-726-843. And that's Debbie Brennan. <clears throat> Excuse me, Debbie Brennan from the Campaign Against Fascism and Racism. And she was talking about the recent arrest of the so-called patriot, we calls himself a patriot, Philip Galea and what it means for all of us. That number is 0422726843. Which base provides key information for every US drone strike, played a crucial role in Iraq and Afghanistan wars, as well as providing targeting and surveillance information for the Israeli Defence Force. Star Wars. The Empire Strikes Back. War is terrorism. It's the Pine Gap Joint Defence Facility, located just 20 kilometres from Alice Springs on Aranda Country, and this year marks 50 years of its inglorious existence. Come and join the closed Pine Gap protest near the gates of the base from September 26 to 30th. For all the details, head to closepinegap.org. Getting quick to book your early bird bus ticket from Melbourne for just $200 return. That's closepinegap.org. See you there. Close Pine Gap is a 3CR supporter. Is terrorism. There are many words used to describe Turkey's president, Tayyip Erdogan, and fewer complimentary. 
despite the fact that millions of supporters view him as their legitimate leader. Words like corrupt, egomaniacal, repressive and authoritarian. Just as there are many who believe the coup was staged, but whatever the truth, he has capitalised on the opportunity to purge his enemies and critics. Next, the viewpoint of Professor Emeritus Jones Petrus from Bingingham University in New York. James, was the coup a fake coup or was it a real attempt to remove Erdogan? I think originally I sought it as a provocation that was uh, provoked by Erdogan. Later, I believe that the... Uh, Gulenists really organized this in a very haphazard way, in a way that they gave their hand away, and the uh, Erdogan people took advantage of that, allowed them to move forward on the coup, and then clamped down on not only the Gulen people that had infiltrated the state, but all sorts of opposition across the spectrum. Yeah, the Gulenists had a strategy which was comparable to what the Fabians tried to do in England at the turn of the 19th century, which was essentially permeate the uh, political and institutional uh, structures rather than try to win elections or overthrow the government. And they thought that by taking over high positions in the government, that they eventually would be able to shape policy in the direction that they wanted it to go. Uh, The Gulenists did something very similar. It was a long-term strategy. It was entering all the major institutions, and it was a very effective approach to eliminating rivals and playing off one group against another, which they did quite successfully, especially in uh, purging the military that was the Republican Party and to uh, look toward eventually displacing Erdogan or making him a captive. I think they uh, completely misread Erdogan's capacities as a political leader and his uh, mass organizations and his ability ultimately to detect that this uh, process was going on. And I think that that was what precipitated the uh, coup and then the uh, counter-coup of Erdogan. And Erdogan, of course, has enormous difficulties because he's been very repressive to trade unions, to uh, leftists, to other groups that had been concerned about his uh, violations of social and human rights. And so what happens is Erdogan launches a huge purge that probably exceeds 60,000 people that have been arrested or driven out of the government, and perhaps even higher, maybe in the 70s or 80,000 at this point. And He's trying to consolidate power. Now, he's isolated because the Gulenists were working closely with the U.S., and I suspect that there's good evidence to argue that the U.S. was involved in the coup in a very ineffective way 
and that they burnt a lot of bridges about with their interlocutors. I think the uh, U.S. then reacted by pretending to to demand Erdogan cease his uh, repressive policies. His repressive policies were against the Gulenists first and later other groups, but the U.S. then pretended to be generally favorable to all the groups being repressed, which was phony uh, from the beginning because they never protested Erdogan when he was attacking the uh, left-wing groups, the trade unions, and even the left-wing Kurds. So it's a very complex picture. Erdogan is no savior of democracy. He did prevent a coup from taking place. He did block the U.S. from taking complete control of the government. But Erdogan himself is a uh, supporter of uh, Islamic extremism. He's worked closely with the U.S., Saudi Arabia, uh, and he still does. Uh, agreement with Russia has no uh, no viability. Uh, Erdogan and, and Putin may have talked, but Erdogan has uh, not conceded a single concession on the uh, question of supporting the uh, ISIS and the terrorist groups. He's still uh, working with the U.S., and he doesn't show any sign of uh, attempting to uh, bridge the gap of solidifying the uh, electoral process in Syria. Could you explain a bit further why the U.S. would want to get rid of Erdogan? Well, that's a very good question and not too easy to digest. I'll say this. Erdogan worked with the U.S. He was involved with the U.S. in the uh, attacks on Syria, but he also was uh, his own boss in some ways, and he had ambitions of not only throwing out the uh, Syrian government, Bashar Assad, but establishing his own fiefdoms independently of the U.S. So he shared with the U.S. The U.S. supported him, And he also was uh, allied with the U.S. against Russia for many, many years. But uh, as I mentioned, he was an enemy of the Kurds. The Kurds were working with the U.S., in particular in Iraq. They are essentially satellites of the U.S., but they also uh, overlapped with Kurdish groups, which were for independence or autonomy in Turkey, and this uh, created uh, animosity, and the U.S. was not happy with the fact that Erdogan was repressing all of the Kurds, and he was undermining U.S. client building among the Kurds. And so we have a variety of issues here that Erdogan wasn't completely in the uh, orbit of the U.S., whereas the Gulenists, from what I've read in the past, have been very much supportive of U.S. policies to Israel, to the Kurds, and to uh, supporting a U.S. uh, type of uh, integration or economic ties around the uh, lines of uh, some kind of a completely neoliberal regime. Not long after the attempted coup, Erdogan went to Russia. That, to me, says two things. First, that he feels very secure, 
and the second, why the increased relations with, with well, Russia? Well, I think the big issue for Erdogan is the tremendous losses, economic losses, the Russian sanctions on tourism, on agricultural imports, uh, Russia's investment in building the uh, oil pipeline with Turkey. These were multi-billion dollar transactions that Erdogan was uh, deeply affected by in a negative way. And so he thought by making uh, verbal commitments to Russia and uh, pretending to be in opposition to the U.S., he could gain these economic concessions. And he, he apparently has got some concessions. Russia's promised to lift the uh, restrictions on tourism and to open up uh, markets. But I think uh, Putin has no illusions about Erdogan keeping his uh, commitments to uh, a peaceful resolution of the Syrian question. I don't think anybody should have any illusions. Erdogan is going to continue to sponsor the terrorist wars in Syria. So I think this agreement has, uh, between this getting together between Russia and Turkey, is not going very far. It may uh, result in some uh, overtures diplomatically. It may lead to some increasing economic ties, but I don't think uh, that the Russians are going to have any success in bringing Erdogan around on a negotiated, a peaceful resolution of the conflict in Syria. You've mentioned Israel a couple of times. What's in it for them? For the Israelis? Yes. Well, I think the Israeli connection always has existed with Erdogan, only it reached boiling heat when the Israelis murdered the nine Turkish uh, peace people that were trying to get to uh, break the uh, blockade of Gaza, and the outburst in Turkey was enormous, a 90% rejection of any relations with Israel. So, uh, this was a tactical retreat, demagogic turn by Erdogan, and uh, over the years he's been working uh, under the table with Israel, and now he's coming out uh, in much more forward way. He's very uh, interested in exploiting the uh, gas and oil off the coast of Palestine and between Cyprus and, and uh, Gaza. So I think the relationships with Israel, on the other hand, unlike Russia, will probably improve, and this will also help Erdogan regain his, improve his relationships with the United States, since the United States follows Israeli foreign policy on most Middle East issues. So I think that Erdogan will probably come to some understanding with Israel in the near future. Focus on human rights. Erdogan has got a very bad record anyway, but 60,000 people arrested or jailed in dreadful conditions in jails. Yes, I think he's brutalizing the opposition uh, of all sorts, not just the Gulenists, not only the people in the coup. But any person, or p- persons who are not 100% uh, 
with uh, Erdogan. It's a, it's a major purge that violates all the human rights of academics, professionals, etc. And, and it's going to undermine the professionalism of the government. It's going to undermine the uh, educational and the uh, advanced sectors of uh, the uh, Turkish economy. And I think while he may consolidate his political stranglehold on these institutions, the level of functioning is going to be very bad, especially the financial ministries where the uh, government has gone in and purged. And I think this is going to have negative effects in attracting investments under which Erdogan looked toward to contain uh, his uh, economic difficulties. How is this attack on human rights going to affect his relations with Europe? Oh, Europe will complain and whine. Uh, they will. Uh, they never were very enthusiastic about Turkey in the U- European Union. I think the uh, attempts by Erdogan to reintroduce the death penalty will become the pretext for the European Union to try to put distance to them. But the European Union is very weak, it's very defensive, and it, it hasn't developed a uh, policy that would allow them to move very uh, forcefully against Erdogan's violations of human rights. I think, again, it'll be a lot of moaning and groaning uh, and a lot of complaints, even some uh, outrage. But Erdogan is set on the purges, on the bloodletting in Turkey, and I think the European Union is faced with the dilemma that their wars have created enormous refugees. The Europeans were counting on Turkey absorbing the refugees that their wars had caused, and now they're in a problem because uh, they can't make any more concessions to Erdogan under the conditions of uh, major repression. On the other hand, they don't have an alternative. Well, what's happening with the refugees? Because there are millions that were in Turkey. Well, I think that uh, they are likely to stay and rot there. I don't think uh, Greece or any adjoining country can absorb them, uh, I think they are going to suffer enormous difficulties and and, uh, suffer enormously from their destitution. What about ISIS? They had free passage through... ISIS is closely tied with Turkey, despite what the Turks say. They have networks in Turkey. They received arms. They sold oil via... Erdogan's own family. Now there is some falling out, uh, and that has had repercussions because the uh, ISIS people were able to take some retaliatory bombings that uh, deeply affected some of the civilian population. But I noticed that in the recent period, uh, after the original bombings, they haven't uh, followed up. So I suspect that uh, the uh, Turkish intelligence has come back to some understanding with ISIS. And uh, we do know that the terrorist groups have been receiving a large number of arms across the Turkish border, that several thousand 
new terrorists have crossed over from Turkey into uh, Syria. So uh, I suspect that whatever the difficulties and conflicts that sprang up recently between ISIS and Turkey is a passing phenomenon. In a recent paper, you wrote, the failed coup means a retreat for Washington in the region and a possible advance for Syria, Iran, Lebanon and Russia. Can you talk to that? Well, I think that is the uh, uh, that is the axis of, of uh, positive reaction to the crises of terrorism in the Middle East. However, they face a, a counter-axis, which is Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Israel, and the United States, and the European Union. And these are forces which have been involved in this conflict, and I think that there is unlikely that there'll be any resolution. Uh, I think the U.S. talks about uh, peace, but uh, I noticed that during the period during which there was some humanitarian uh, holdup in the shooting, that was when the Europeans allowed for large-scale arms shipments to their followers among the moderate terrorists that they back. Could you have imagined a few years ago that Turkey would have ended up like this? Well, it's hard to predict. There were so many uh, different elements, but I think the U.S. is uh, hell-bent on a course of uh, political and military intervention that we saw in Iraq, we saw in Afghanistan, we saw in Libya. So I think the uh, U.S. engagement with terrorism and right-wing forces in Syria follows the pattern that their policy is either rule or ruin. If they can't install a government in power, they then proceed to downgrade and degrade existing governments like they did in Libya uh, in uh, destroying Gaddafi. They let set in motion a whole variety of terrorist, tribalist, monarchist groups, and they've destroyed the country and yet have not been able to create their own puppet regime. And I think that's the game they're playing in Syria. Not good look for Syria at the moment. No, I think Syria has made some progress because of their alliance with the Russian Air Force and with the uh, Hezbollah and their other supporters in uh, in Iran. But I don't think the uh, that's going to be sufficient. I think the uh, U.S. is going to continue to prop up the uh, terrorist groups in the country, and I don't think they're interested in any kind of negotiated diplomatic electoral resolution. Thank you, James. Thank you, Jen. And that's analysis from Professor Emeritus James Petrus, James Petrus, from Bingham University in New York. And I spoke with him very early this morning. That's all I have for today. It's great to be back. I'll be back again next Tuesday at four. Go out with a little bit of Rumpy Band, Black Fella, White Fella, and coming up, Done by Law, in about three minutes. Bye for now.